my definition of success is embracing like the hustling grind for whatever it is your goal is. Okay, guys, welcome to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. I am super excited to have, I would say, the celebrity nutritionist <laughs> in the house, Maya Fellner. Uh, Maya Fellner has so many letters after her name. I don't even know what all of them are. I was on your website yesterday, and there's like, I don't know, you have like seven letters, which are like three advanced degrees. You are everywhere. I was at the gym on Saturday. I saw you on Good Morning America. You were on The Chew, I think, this week. Yeah. You're on Dr. Oz all the time. <laughs> So I am very humbled that you made the trip out here from Brooklyn to spend the morning with us. Um, and I'm super excited to hear your story, as I think everyone is. And uh, I just I couldn't I can't thank you enough. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Dr. Mudgill. I am ecstatic to be here. I think that you are fantastic. I appreciate um, that. Yeah, you are an extremely talented dermatologist and thank you're you. my dermatologist as well. So that's how I know, you know my, that, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. I have to put that out there. I mean, yeah. So you're great. And thank you so much for having me. I've been watching your podcast and I'm so inspired by the stories that people tell because I think it's just really relatable. And it's like we all just want to share story and like be part of a larger community. So it's really gorgeous. You nailed it. I thank, I thank you for that. Thank you for watching. <laughs> um, so, you know, as because you watch the podcast and you listen to the podcast, you know, like one of the things that I like to do to just kind of kick things off is you're incredibly successful and i'm sure there's like a young person out there that like well, sees you on tv and is like oh wow like you know like this is like such an incredible woman and you know we're going to share your whole story and how you got to where you are but what to you defines success you know that's such a great question i thought a lot about it and you know because my background is so diverse and when I think about success, I can't just think about it in the context of myself. I kind of think about it in the larger community and I realize that for everyone, it's going to look different. And so I measure my own personal success kind of on how I'm doing, how I feel about myself, how my family's doing, how my, you know, smaller community and then a bit my larger community is doing and the impact that I can make in those different areas. When I think about like the people that I work with and my patients, for some of them, success is literally just being able to make one consistent change and stick with it over time. And I think also really coming to terms with the fact that it's all a process, right? Everything that we do is a process and it's about figuring out how do I make these positive changes in my life and hold on to them and actually have them, you know, be pleasurable. So that's some of the ways that I think about success. I think you nailed it. I mean, it's interesting because <laughs> you're right. Like for everyone, there's like a different hustler grind that they're going through. So yeah. whether it's like, you know, you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to quit smoking or right. you're trying to like drink less or, you know, like in your world, there's probably a lot of that. Right. It's that embracing for me, the success. And I've said this a bunch of times, it's embracing the hustle and grind of whatever it is your goal is. Right. Yeah. So that pretty much just sums it up, you know, and, and I love that because it's a different take on yeah. success. So, yeah. And, but it's all ultimately what I'm learning just by talking to so many people is all ultimately the same thing. Right. right. So, which is awesome. And, um, you know, just you are such a successful woman. Um, I like to start like from the beginning, basically, okay. you know, just kind of learning a little bit about what made you who you are. So, you know, like, where did you grow up? Um, are you from New York? You know, do you have 
large family, small family, just maybe just give us a little bit of background on, you know, what your roots really are. Absolutely. So I was born and I'd say partially raised in Massachusetts. I was born in Cambridge. um, And the time when I was born, it was a very academic town. And it was also a very diverse and multicultural town. Both of my biological parents are from the Caribbean. My biological father is from Haiti. And he was born there at the time when, my goodness, like the political regime was really, I'd say, volatile. And so his upbringing was kind of one, actually, a story of true success. You know, he grew up very, very poor. And he was actually able to come to the U.S. with the help of some families. And he studied music. He has two masters and a Ph.D., and he was the chair of the music department at Wellesley College. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's an extraordinary human. Holy he, smokes. Yeah, he now has a foundation in Haiti where he educates children who are zero to, sorry, age five until seven, eight, nine. And he educates them in its music, arts, and culture. And it's an extraordinary school. That's um, wild. Is he a musician? He is. He's an ethnomusicologist. And so he looks at the intersection of music, arts, and culture and really believes that, you know, that is kind of integral to who we are, right? Honoring all of those parts of ourselves. Yeah, I had the wonderful experience of going to Haiti a couple years ago with my kids. And, you know, it was really moving. It was the first time I've ever been there. Um, And it it is as poor as everyone says, uh, but it is a beautiful country it's seen so much and it's such a hard place to be but there are people who are you know really trying to make it through the day-to-day and kind of lift up the people that are living there so does your dad live there now full-time so he goes back and forth between haiti and florida he comes up for like you know all of his medical stuff um and then he goes back to make sure the school is running and that the kids have what they need and they have a feeding program i mean he's extraordinary that's like legit it is legit i know (laughs) so you grew up in cambridge but wellesley is where's wellesley's in outside of cambridge it is is right outside of cambridge yeah and so so close to cambridge yeah it's pretty close and my biological mother was born in the english-speaking caribbean and the sister islands of trinidad and tobago she too came here and is a sociologist by her phd um was a really active, I'd say, in that third wave of black feminism, kind of looking at the intersectionality of gender, race, and class, um, you know, work around land rights and indigenous people. I know my family, they're like academic powerhouses. Yeah, you have like legit <laughs> academic roots. I mean, yeah. that's amazing. I mean, I can't imagine, like growing up, in that it must have been just a constant stimulation. It know? was totally the and women. And they sounded hip, too. Like, your parents were probably pretty hip. Like they were very hip. Stuff. They weren't together. So, you know, I went between two homes, but I have to say. Where was your mom teaching? She was teaching at Brandeis University okay. at the time. So in Boston also. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the women that were around our dinner table are names that people absolutely recognize. And the conversations that were had were really stimulating, kind of made me from a young age think about who am I, who do I want to be in relationship to my community? Who am I as a woman of color? What does it mean to take space in a way that is actually helpful and empowering to myself and people around me? So, you know, that was kind of how I grew up there in Massachusetts. We then came to New York. When Do you have I'm, siblings also? I have a half-brother from my dad, and I have some step-siblings okay. from you know marriages and so on. Gotcha. But um, you were basically floating between mom and dad's place. Exactly, yeah, okay. between them. Majority of the time with my mom, and then you know 
uh, weekends and summers with my dad. Not, not to dive into like, you know, all, all the dirt and stuff. Yeah. But how old were you when your parents were divorced? I think I must have been like five. Okay. So if I look young. at that. Yeah. So I look, I was pretty young. So I, I grew up in a single parent household too, but okay. my, my parents got divorced when I was like less than a year old. So okay. I had like zero contact with my dad at all. Oh, never met him, never spoken to him. Yeah. Um, whereas my brother was eight, he's seven years older than me. He was eight, so it's like we have very sort of different, you know. Yeah. Like growing up in a single parent house is very different for the two of us. So I'm always curious, is like yeah. you know, what other folks' story is. You know what's interesting about that is when I talk to people, I always forget that we, you know, in mainstream society, still what the norm is is to have a mom and a dad and the right. 1.5 children, and that when you're outside of that, people still find it extraordinary, yeah. right? And that our stories aren't really kind of talked about or open in mainstream. Totally. Yeah, yeah. that's why I love going back to the beginning. Yeah. Uh, where you grew up, was it pretty diverse? So Cambridge at the time is not the Cambridge that it is now. And it was incredibly diverse. We had so many people who came from overseas who were academics and they were at Harvard or MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, and the families that were there were also really, really diverse. There were, I would say, economically diverse, religiously diverse, and um, racially diverse as well. Wow, that's odd, because now Cambridge is kind of uppity, right? Yeah, like well, uh, I mean, it's pretty know, homogenous. Fancy. And I would say, you know, it's fairly upwardly mobile and kind of white northeast liberal which i mean which is great um but obviously that's not me right <laughs> so you went to high, you went to high school and everything i imagine so i went to high we actually came to new york when my mom got a ford foundation grant um for some work and um it, at, for working in NYU. she, she, she was actually working. was in the city and i think she was at hunter if i okay. remember correctly um and then I actually went to high school in Manhattan on oh, the did. Upper West Side. And I went to a school that was a very progressive school. It was at one time called Walden Lincoln. And when I was there, it was the Trevor Day School. Okay. Um, Which is, that's what it's called. Now, now right? sorry. Yeah, when I was there, it was the Day School. Okay. And then now it's Trevor Day. Okay. So I went there. And I mean, I think there were 20 kids in my graduating wow. class. Um, also, the school has changed drastically. Like the demographics are very different. Um, than That's when a very I was good there. private school, right? It was a great yeah. school. It was a really wonderful school. And then you stayed in New York after that? And I stayed in New York. I went to NYU for undergrad. and That's I did, where my wife went. Yeah, yeah. I did my undergrad in experimental theater and philosophy. Um, and it was not anything in front of the camera. It was more like Buteau and, you know, rolling around on the floor and emoting and... <laughs> Wow. Being very strange. Is that what you thought your <laughs> career trajectory was going to be? Oh, yeah. I thought that I was going to be like, you know, at the Fringe Festival, you know, dancing around, yelling singular words and being very stoic. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right for like an 18, 18-year-old New Yorker. Exactly. And then I soon realized, I was like, oh, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> so then when did you realize that? Um, so I'd say for a few years after undergrad I tried to work in the arts in New York. So you really made a run at it. Yeah I gave yeah. it a good run but the, you know what's interesting was that so I did these experimental plays and you know we had like 15 or 20 people that would come see us because it was so out there. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to go and see a troop of people covered in clay you know <laughs> like yeah, I get it. it's not for everyone. Right. Um, and it's the fringe of the fringe. It's, it was literally yeah. the fringe of the fringe. I loved it. My heart was in it. And, but I thought, wow, I have to figure out, you know, kind of what is my long term. And right. so I took some time and really thought about it. Uh, and I remember I was training for the Boston Marathon. 
And I was running these like huge long runs, like 20 miles, 22 miles. And I would just think and run and think and run. And I got to the point one day and I said, I wonder what's going on with all this food that I eat. Like, where is it going? I'm starving all the time. I'm so hungry. I just keep eating and it's disappearing. And I thought, I bet you I could study that. And so I literally like went back and I talked to my family and they said, you know, you can absolutely study it. Whatever you do, just don't get a certificate. Go for a terminal degree. Right. And so I looked kind of at the area colleges um, because at that time I was with my current husband mm. um, and it was clear that, you know, I mean, what we does were, he do? He's actually works in film. OK. And he is a TV editor. And then he also works on like his own short film projects uh-huh. that are equally controversial. And he has a really interesting project that he's working on right now. Did he go to film? I guess he also went to film school. Or? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He went to the School of Visual Arts. Gotcha. Um, and we met like literally the summer that he arrived from Switzerland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, no why, English. That's why you have Swiss insurance. Exactly. They, there sense. you go. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. I know. Long live the Swiss. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, and so, yeah. So I, you know, looked at the schools in the area and I went back. Just, I'm just because I'm curious. Like, yeah. How did you guys meet? Like, what's your what's? Oh my God, this is such a good story. So we actually met at a theater in the East Village, um, and oh my gosh, I remember he came in and I was like, "That guy's so cute. Who is he?" He spoke no English, and he's like, "Really? Yeah, like no English." And huh. I was like, "Oh, he doesn't speak any English." I was like, "Well, that's neither here nor there." Right. And you know, yeah, and it was like I think I was 18. Oh, you guys have been together for a long time. How long have you been married for? Um, we got married in 2002. Okay. Okay, so we got married in 2004. So. Okay, yeah, see, so yeah. same thing. It's like, you know, long-time sweetheart. It's yeah. really nice, right? It's amazing. It flies by, though. Because we're our 15-year anniversary this year. I can't believe it. It's I crazy. It's just, I know. It's nuts. Three kids later. and you know, But <laughs> just like that. Yeah. So then you were so you're with your husband at the time. You were trying to figure out what's going on. So you, you honed in on nutrition. Right. Or uh, did you hone in on nutrition? I did. I absolutely honed in on nutrition. And so I looked at NYU, I think Columbia and Hunter as the schools. And I I think Brooklyn College also. And I decided on NYU because the program is clinical. And it's a clinical focus with people, right? So that was important to you. It was really important. I also didn't want to do long-term care and I wasn't interested in research at the time. Mm -hmm. And so... So long-term care mean like working like a nursing home or something? Exactly. So you knew that even before you... Like pursue the degree? Yeah. Well, because if you go clinical and it's not long-term care, that gives you the opportunity to work in a hospital where Uh you can get really great skills. And then also you could work in a community setting as well, which you get the skills are unbelievable just because of the exposure. So how, how long is that whole program? So because I did my undergrad in theater and philosophy, I had two, I, two and a half years of science that I had to redo. I mean, you know, if you take yeah. sociology and like performative gay theater, that's not going right. to cut it. Right. So you take a bio. <laughs> exactly. Organic chemistry. You take organic chemistry too. That's yeah. a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, phys- that's physiology. Yeah. No, we, I mean, we actually know science, you know. Wow. And so, yeah, so I spent two and a half years redoing all my sciences um, and then, you know. At NYU? Yeah, at NYU. Was it like a post-bag or something? No, it was like the, so the way that the program works is you can apply for the master's and if you didn't do your undergrad in any science-based 
you know, medium, you just kind of add those classes in gotcha. and then you take master's classes. Gotcha. So how long is that whole program? So for me, I think I want to say it was like four and a half years because then you have your internship that gotcha. is, you know, folded into that once you match. Okay. Um, so it's like, a res- it's like med- medical exactly. school. Kinda. And I did my, you know, I did my rotations at Sloan Kettering. Okay. Um, so that was, I mean, it was amazing. It was really amazing. So that's like, how old were you when this all went down? Oh my gosh. When did you start? So I went back, I want to say 2006. If my son, I'm trying to. So you were married already. I was married by then. Yeah. And you had a young child. And I did. No, 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 no. I wasn't pregnant at the time. I had no kids at the time. And then I got pregnant during the program. Okay. Yeah. So, because I was 30 when I had Parker. Okay. So. How old are you now? Uh, I am 41. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I'm 43. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah. you had a child. It's, it's, it kind of reminds me of my friends during residency yeah. who had children during residency and stuff. So like they're, the hustle is real. Yeah. But then this is like, you know, a whole other totally. element of life that it's like, you know, but especially having a newborn, it's exhausting. It was super exhausting. And but you can't really take time off from school, can you? No. So what I did was I was completing my master's coursework, and so rather than applying and for my internship, I completed the master's coursework in its entirety, which allowed me to stay home. You know what I mean, and have more of like an academic schedule. And then I went and did my rotations. So gotcha. when I did my rotations, my son was two. Okay. Um, and that's a little better. You know, you have a nanny and it's right. so much more manageable and you have actually help and support as opposed to having to rush home. But I do remember taking some classes and like literally pumping in between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember my wife, we were living in the city when we had, and she's a dentist, so she would kind of drive around to a bunch of offices. Yeah. And I'd literally be like talking to her while she's driving home and you just hear the rum, rum, yeah. rum, I was like, I was like, what's going on, baby? She's like, oh, I'm pumping. You yeah. Know? She's like pumping while she's driving yeah. and stuff. Yeah. You, you got to make it work. Fit yeah. it in. You yeah. Know? But it, it is amazing. I mean, it yeah. really is like the It's it's a hustle. It know? is a hustle. But you're very focused, yeah. right? Because it's like, first of all, you change your career. And second of all, you're kind of like, you know what? I need this to work. I want this to work. And then also my level invest, of investment was so high. Right. It was so high. Which also, like, you know, when you're older and you commit to doing something, there's a lot more at stake on it too, right? right? So it's like, you know, you got to make that shit work. Yeah, totally. Because, (laughs) you know, you're taking years of your life, like, you know, and it's productive years. That's right. So when you were done, so you were probably, what, like 32-ish? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and then you do like a... I guess an intern residency or something. Exactly. Something so like you do an something. internship and then after the internship you sit for an exam and then, you know, you pass the exam. And my first job was I was a dietitian in a community setting and they hired me, but they hadn't hired the rest of the staff. And, you know, because I have this diverse background, I could I could do it all. Like I went in yeah. like bright eyed, bushy tailed, and they're like, Yeah, folks are homeless, unstably housed, infectious disease. I was like, I've got this. I did not have it. Yeah. I was like, oh, big time learning curve. Wow. Big time learning curve. I mean, it's no joke when you have people with infectious disease in the city who are homeless and unstably housed. There's always a reason, right. a mental health condition right. Right. on top of it. And then, you know, they said, well, now you're going to become the program manager because you've been here and we haven't hired anyone else. And you can hire the rest of the staff. Um, and, you know, I had a soup kitchen, a food pantry. Oh. I had group nutrition education. I mean, it was a huge, huge learning curve for me. I never had been in 
housing where people lived in SROs. I'd never, you know. I'd What's t- SRO? So it's a single room occupancy. Like you go into a building and it's, you know, 75 units and people have a room and then a shared kitchen, oh, wow. you know, and they're usually on food stamps, well, always on food stamps and the food stamps don't ever last and it's emergency housing and vouchers. And, you know, I never, ever saw anything like that and didn't understand how you could prioritize nutrition when the primary needs weren't being met. Right. And so I just worked really hard to make my soup kitchen and food pantry as robust as it could be to make sure that the meals program was great. And then also to focus that group nutrition education on things that were actionable for where they were. So what it, like what did you find was actionable for the, that demographic? It's a very hard demographic. I really mean, hard. You know, these are folks that are just like literally looking to have like a roof or like exactly. to get out of the freezing cold or yeah. whatever it is. Um, and again, like food is like a secondary thing, right? Yeah. It's like, so what what is actionable, would you say, for, you know, like what did you find? So we had to get great, um, like really, I'd say creative And with a lot of patients, I would go with them to the grocery store for, you know, to use their emergency food voucher. And we would do like... So how much money is that? So sometimes the voucher was $25, Okay. which is, I mean... Not a lot. Not a lot. And so we would go and we would say, well, what can we do with this $25? What can we buy that are staples that you can have as dry goods or canned goods and frozen goods? So we were saying, like, let's not buy anything that's perishable with this. We're going to use your food stamps for, like, dairy and cheese and eggs, and let's use this emergency voucher for frozen goods, you know, rice, beans, things of that sort. So for food stamps, like, what is the denomination for that? So it depends on how many people are in the family, where you are, like what your federal poverty guideline cutoff is. And usually my folks were getting somewhere in the range of $110 a month. Okay, which is also done a lot. Exactly. So, you know, we worked a lot on budgeting. And then that's why I tried to make the food pantry as robust as possible, right? right? So if I could get in fresh produce and things like that, then they could get that from the pantry. Not have to use Ex- any of their funds for that. Exactly. Right? Wow. So, I that's mean. A, that's a pretty big task. It was real. I mean, I think it was one of the best educations that I ever received. And it really made me check my privilege. You know, like in a real way, like and I don't just mean economic privilege. I mean, the fact that I had the luxury to sit and learn and think and ponder and really just, you know, develop myself. Because when your primary needs aren't met, that's not happening. Yeah, It's like focusing on surviving. Exactly. You you don't have time to focus on, on learning. Exactly. Wow. So how long did you do that for? So I lasted four years. Four years. Yeah. It was. Wow. Short. You know, because it was like, I mean, I was working. That's a long time. I can't imagine. I mean, that's, I mean, that's intense <laughs> yeah, four it, years. It was super. It was very intense. And the hours must have been like insane, they I were. imagine. Yeah. I was and, you, and then how many children do you have? I have two. You have two. So yeah. At that, did you have your second child like, so during that period? I actually got pregnant with my second child during that period. And it was at that point that I decided that it was untenable for me to actually have a job like that where like I was working Monday through Friday, but then Saturdays and Sundays driving around to like the food co-op or CSAs to pick up the extras so I could bring them into my pantry. It just, you know, it wouldn't work with two kids. And that's when I said, all right, I'm going to work on my own. And I continued in the same vein. So I worked with the Department of Health doing nutrition education still for people with HIV AIDS, 
Um, and then I started working in the housing projects where I would do group nutrition education, kind of focused around chronic disease. Were those well attended? Like when you would set something up, you know, for a group? So it was with another, like it was, we had a physical education component. And so it was a 12 week program. And we would go directly like to the community center. So, you know, folks cool. were, they just came downstairs. Right. Um, and they were well attended. It was hard. Again, you know, similar population, right? So you have someone who has uncontrolled hypertension and they live in a neighborhood where, you know, you can't find a piece of fruit or a vegetable to save you, much less a packaged good that has anything but added sugar, salts, and fat. Right. It was like an uphill battle. Right. Yeah. I mean, can I have like fast food and control your hypertension? No, not at all. So that like doing what you do now, I mean, so again, like, you know, your life then is like, very different than your life now, although you're basically, you're doing the same stuff right. in education. Um, but you know, you're like, you know, like a big time, you know, TV nutritionist now, like how does that happen? You know, like, how, yeah. did, how did you go from, you know, being immersed in the community? I'm sure you still do a lot of stuff with the yeah. community, but to doing like what you do now, like education on such a broad level with such a huge millions of people watching you. Right. The truth is it started really small. I got a phone call one day, I'll never forget. I just gotten out of the Bed-Stuy Y pool, which, and I rarely swim, um, but I think I'd hurt my hips, so I was swimming instead of running. I got a phone call from a producer at GMA saying, are you available to come in this afternoon to go on tape? A new study came out about kids and nutrition, and we'd love for you to talk to Mara Scavocampo about it. And I said, oh, my gosh, first thing. I just got out of the pool. I'm a black woman. My hair. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, and I was like, I can make this work. And I was like, right, I'm going to go figure out my hair. And then I was like, oh, and I have to read the study. Oh, and I have to pull it together. Ran upstairs to my neighbor at the time I lived in an apartment building who was um, a designer. And I was like, I need a dress. And, you know, got this super cute dress. And the car was in front of my house. So they came to pick you up. Yeah. But did, how, did they, how were you on the radar? So I think they'd been watching me like on social media because um, I would post like random things mm -hmm. on Instagram like you know, here's my salad and here's some nutrition education. Well, your Instagram is popping. Yeah. Like, you know, you have a lot of great, I love watching your stories Thanks. and stuff. Yeah, when you're cooking up a meal for Thanks. the kids on a Sunday morning. Right, morning. exactly. Yeah. I know we literally had dandelion greens this morning for breakfast. Amazing. Um, and a duck egg. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I went in and, you know, I think because I don't take myself so seriously, you know, and because I have so much respect for other people's stories, I really aim to be thoughtful when I'm on air and like connect with whoever I'm talking to. And uh, Mara Scavocampo is an extraordinary journalist. And, you know, it was a great segment. It was like a really good first taping segment. And they were like, nice job. We'll stay in touch and from there they how long ago was that oh let's see i want to say it has to be somewhere like maybe four years it's four or four or five something like that um and they said we'll stay in touch and so then you know i did a bunch of taped segments and the segments got longer and more mm -hmm. robust um, and then I got another phone call and it was a bring our kids to work day and I think this was two years ago and they said, would you and your son come on? And it's GMA, bring your kids to work. And it's like live streaming through their Facebook page. And I was like, sure. 
And I remember I brought my son with me and we were on together and it was like this huge like tray of candy and they were making candy sandwiches. And then I was talking about like healthier alternatives. And yeah, so we went on together. And then from there, I started doing the live segments. And I have to say, you know, honing my craft and getting better on air, because there there are some technicalities that you like have to know, like, where's your camera? And, you know, you can't be like blinking all the time, you know, like like all of your faces. Exactly. And because I don't take myself so seriously, sometimes I forget about the visual portion and I have to remember, oh, I have to pay attention to that as well. Right. Um, Do they help you with that? Like, is it like, oh, hey, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a whole glam squad. Yeah. And they are so you extraordinary. Go in there just, like, putting all the makeup on. Yeah, yeah. They make you look real fly. Yeah. <laughs> you always look fly. You always, you always look fly anyway. Thank you so much. Thank you. But on TV. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so, I mean, the truth is that I deeply believe in the power of nutrition. I also think that when we talk about seeing different types of people talking about nutrition and representation, it's so important for folks to see black and brown people in medical positions just as yourself and me having these evidence-based conversations that are real and actionable you know like i'm not just saying you only can live on cottage cheese and sliced apples i'm saying there are multiple ways to be healthy and we can individualize it to you and you know like kind of living that and staying in that all the time. Right. I mean, when you believe the message, it's easy to deliver it. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it really always resonates when I see, ever I see you on TV. Thank the message you. really comes through. <laughs> so what's next? You know, like what's what's on the horizon? You know, what are your goals? You know, where is this where is this going to go? That's such a good question. Um, I said to someone the other day, I said, you know what's so amazing? I said, I wish I woke up every morning and I was like, I'm the awesomest. Because <laughs> I always think that I'm thinking, okay, well, how can I continue to learn and grow? Right. Like I'm going to be a forever student. Um, you know, I would love to continue doing the work that I'm doing on air. Um, I would also love to have some kind of, you know, platform where maybe I'm doing some series like a six part or a 12 part series focused around community and nutrition and short story sharing and things of that sort. Um, I just, yeah, I want to really examine different types of people, cultures, their nutrition and, you know, work in that arena. And I'd love to do it publicly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's very, what we do is very similar on a clinical level, right? Like, you know, we're seeing patients and we're like helping them with their day to day needs. Right. But you know the level of scale sometimes. If you want to have a big impact, it's you know you can only touch so many right. people a day when right. you're seeing patients. You know, so I think like for me, a lot of what inspired like what I'm doing now is I want to get the message across to more people. Yeah. You know, and whether it's like dermatology stuff or just great stories like this, right? It's um, sometimes like when you're in the grind and like you know I've been doing it for like ten years in my own private practice. It'll yeah. be ten years. Two days. Oh my goodness! Congratulations. Yeah. That's yeah, a huge you. milestone. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. But I felt kind of stifled a little bit, yeah. you know. And there was like more that I wanted to do, which it sounds like well, you're doing it. Yeah. But you know, but even when you're at the level that you're at, there's always like more that you could do. Absolutely. You know? Which is that that embracing that grind is really for me. That's yeah. like my happy place. You know, yeah. like trying to okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? So it sounds like you know you got your what's next. Yeah. You know, and I have to say in my what's next, like I really don't ever want to leave like 
people behind. Of course. You know, like that's a huge part of why I do what I do is because I really believe that when we look at the health of our country and we look at the, you know, the rates of diet related chronic illnesses in certain, you know, especially disenfranchised communities, like I have to do the work. Yeah. And also like seeing patients is a big part of that. Oh, right? yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, what, yeah. what? Tell us a little bit about your private practice. So the folks that come to see me are it's all diet related chronic illness. So it's diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. Um, I don't do that much weight management. Sometimes mm. people will come to see me um, and they're looking to lose weight. Uh, but usually because there's a comorbidity, I actually focus on that because mm. I think weight loss is challenging you know, and complicated and, you know, layered and emotional. Mm -hmm. And I like to focus on kind of, okay, well, how can we affect your labs and bring that within normal limits? Because, I mean, those are the health outcomes that really are an indicator of of their quality and duration of life. So, I mean, just because I'm curious. So someone comes to see you, they're diabetic. Mm -hmm. Their HbA1c is like 10. Okay. I had a 13. Wow. Okay. So say that's 13. (laughs) What do you, like, what do you do? What's... You know, what are some of the steps that you take and, you know, how are you helping the patients right. in front of you? So usually like the first step is to have an initial consult where I do like a full health history, kind of look at what's happening in their lives, their day to day work, life balance, family. And then I look back also at their family history, you know, mother, father, grandparents, when were people diagnosed, were they diagnosed And we look at that. And then I really say to the person, well, you know, what is it that you want from nutrition? I always ask that question. Like, why now? And what do you want? And then it's literally individualized and based on what the person wants with, you know, bringing those labs back Mm -hmm. into normal limits kind of as our guiding beacon. So is it like, just kind of get into like the nuts and bolts of it Mm -hmm. a little bit. So is it, okay, here, like, you know, you got to cut out these carbs and you, know, you got to go eat these like mm-hmm. six ounces of chicken breast or whatever. Is there right. like a specific? So usually what happens is I ask the person to kind of keep track of what they're eating for me. And, you know, like with an app or they can use an app. Some people like paper and pen. Mm-hmm. I can be very flexible about how they chart their intake with the knowledge that self-reporting nutrition data is not always reliable, like fully understanding that, right? Also knowing that when you ask people to self-report, they automatically modify what they're eating because they're now paying attention. So we take a look at that. Right, yeah. We take a look at that and then we think about like really basic stuff like how often are you eating out? What are you eating when you eat out? Okay, how do we shift the ratios of what's on your plate? What are you having as your snack? Are you just having fruit alone? Do you need to back it up with a protein as well as a plant-based fat? Like some of those things. Because what I found when we tell people, okay, you have to cut out X, Y, and Z, they're not likely to be 100% adherent Mm -hmm. and then they feel so guilty. Right. Right. And it's like... Setting yourself up for failure, basically. Yeah. And I say, like, what we want is to really influence sustainable change that you can, like, feel good about. Because, like, if I tell you, all right, you can never have any carbohydrates ever again, number one, that's insane, (laughs) right? Because there's carbohydrates in fruits and vegetables. But, you know, if I say that, people are going to be like, I'm not going to work with you. I'm not coming back. Because all I do is just feel bad about myself. And so I really try to say, all right, well, what can we do that fits into your life? That is like realistic. So much psychology and everything. Right? It's amazing. <laughs> it is. And I actually work with a number of really good therapists, like great therapists. Really? Oh, yeah. 
because I'm a dietitian, right? And so there is some behavioral work that I do. But at the end of the day, you know, food is everywhere and we all have to eat to live. And once you start to modify and shift some of those things, for some people, a lot of emotions come up. And I feel like that's best dealt with and unpacked in a safe therapeutic setting. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. True. We could all benefit from a therapist. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. <laughs> well, my, I could keep you here all day. Me too. It's this so is... fascinating to talk to you. And it's amazing. Like, I know you as a patient, yeah. but like when you really, but I always like loved you and yeah. thought you were cool. We had a cool dynamic. Yeah. But when you really get to like sit down and talk to somebody, it's just so much cooler than, yeah. you know, you really learn about somebody. And I really feel like I got a pretty good insight yeah. into like what makes you tick. And I love it. Well, thank you, know, you so much. I mean, amazing. I think you're extraordinary. I have to, I, what I have to say really quickly is the way that I found you was, I'll never forget reaching out to a friend of mine. And I said, you know what? I really need a dermatologist who understands my skin, you know, as a woman of color. And she's like, I know the person. And she's like, and you know what else is really amazing? He can deal with everybody's skin. And I was like, sign me up. Oh, I love it. So, you know, I think that speaks mountains to you that, you know, I have friends who were, you know, 40-year-old white men, and I have friends who were 53-year-old women of color who were coming to see you. I mean, I think you really serve the whole patient and understand us where we are and, like, meet our needs and keep us looking good. Well, I appreciate it. That's, that's the goal. <laughs> I will close with one thing. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing now, like uh, all the Instagram stuff and, you know, all the PR stuff, Yeah. I have to thank you, actually, for it because, um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but we, like, sat down. And I was like, told you what my dreams really oh, were. Yeah. And it was at a time in my life where I kind of felt like I could offer so much more. Right. But I just didn't know how to do it. And, you know, when I, you, you really helped me out a lot. Oh, my and goodness. I'm very grateful to you for that. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I also want you to just plug your Instagram. Oh. Because it's ridiculously good. <laughs> and everyone needs to follow you. Thank you. So where can folks find you? Yeah, so folks can find me on social at Maya Feller RD. Okay. And seriously. Subscribe. It's it's awesome. You gotta follow Maya. It's really, really Thank good. You. She cooks these amazing meals, you know, and it's just fun watching you like, you know, from beginning to end, like with the prep and you know, <laughs> the final product. I love Sometimes it. it's hilarious. There's a show right there, I'll tell you. It's really, really good. But thank you so much, Maya, for joining us uh, today. And this is so gonna much. be I think Folks are really going to be inspired by this podcast, and I appreciate you making the effort to share your story. Well, thank you so much for having me and bringing me out here. This has been awesome, and you're fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) All right, guys, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Budgill Podcast. You can find a corresponding video to this podcast on YouTube, Facebook, and IGTV. Let's get it.